This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome, everybody. We are back in the great indoors talking about the great outdoors. I have Patrick Edwards with me here today. Hey, everybody. So, uh, we're rolling and going. I'm Episode 100 and something, I don't know. We just we're getting close to 120, I think, or right at 120. Keep cranking them out. But today, guys, uh, I'm, I'm super excited. We have a, a guest via Zoom for you, and it'll be recorded and on YouTube, so you can come watch it. But we have Christy Titus. Christy grew up, she was riding and packing in the mountains, in the backcountry, experiencing the beauty and thrills of hunting. Uh, she enjoys our public land. She's a great voice for, you know, American values and the Second Amendment. So welcome to the show, Christy. Thank you guys for having me on, my fellow Wyomingites. <laughs> That's right. We, we, whether we're transplants or not, we're now Wyomingites, so with, this is home <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, this is the best secret in the country. Let's keep it that way. Uh, I yeah. like to tell everybody when I'm on the road that A, Wyoming doesn't exist, B, Wyoming's full, and C, the winters will blow you away, so you don't want to go there. The wind is so bad, nobody wants to live in Wyoming. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It's full, too. So, let's just get into it. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Oregon, so central Oregon is where I spent most of my life from, like, the time I was five. I think my parents moved there. I won't tell you where I'm originally from in Oregon, because it sucks. But uh, Central Oregon is a great place to grow up and live. And, you know, it was really it was really a tough decision to move, to be honest with you, because there's a lot of really great things about the state of Oregon. There's just a small portion of uh, Oregon that just ruins it for everybody else. So, yeah. Well, I grew up on the uh, west side of Oregon in the Wet Valley. And I will tell you, Oregon is probably one of the most diverse, coolest, best yeah. states but the politics there just are indicative of a place I don't want to live. So from crabbing to coastal Roosevelt's to Rocky Mountain Elk to blacktail to mule deer, I mean, the diversity of from Crater Lake up to, you know, Snake River and everywhere in between, whether you like to fish or hunt, it's a, it's a great state. It really is. But I did a really cool turkey hunt there where I was turkey hunting by day and I was fishing surf perch on the Pacific Ocean with my uncle in the afternoons. And it was a really cool episode. And I don't know, there's not a lot of places in the country where you can be turkey hunting in then fishing. And, and actually, we could have even coupled it with a spring bear hunt, too. So Oregon can be you know, super awesome in many capacities. Uh, so, But I could not be more thrilled to live in the great state of Wyoming. So, so what's your favorite part about living in Wyoming now? Uh, everybody's always like why is your truck so dirty all the time because in the winter in wyoming like where i live you leave sheridan proper every road is a dirt road there's not like paved roads um everybody waves at you when you're driving down those dirt roads and everybody knows their neighbors everybody knows what's going on like even when I leave my house in town, I got like full neighborhood watch. Uh, the neighbor guy 
and be like, oh, yeah, you know, you had a family member walk their dog in your yard and shoot your mail. Is that okay? And, like, the people here are really make it worthwhile living here, the ones that are here. Um, and there's not a lot of people, and I really like that. And, you know, my husband and I just acquired a couple hundred acres uh, northeast of town, and we don't have neighbors at all. Like, you can literally not see another structure you know, on one side of me is like a 6,500-acre ranch, and the other side of me is a 2,000-acre ranch, and to my north is like a 3,000-acre ranch, and I'm kind of nestled in this little alcove of amazing, there's no people, there's antelope, and there's mule deer. <laughs> That's great. Yep. I, I back up to a couple smaller ranches, and Patrick backs up to thousands of acres of game and fish ground, and he doesn't see anybody out of his backyard. Yeah, it's kind of nice. And he's got access to a pretty cool creek that's just chocked full of birds and game. And Yeah, upland and waterfowl. I can go down there and go hunting within, you know, just a short, short walk from the house. So that's it's pretty awesome to, to be able to do that here in Wyoming. And um, just kind of going back to it, when you were growing up in Oregon, what was like one of your most memorable hunting trips as a kid? You know, from the time I was little, I just, I was obsessed with the mules, really, like, to be honest with you, and uh, I just want to tag along with my dad and go do stuff with the mules and ride, and my dad and I, when we spent so many times where we were packed in or riding and, you know, things changed and we were out late nights and cold and enduring, I mean, I got fucked off and trampled and my mom put trash bags on me for raincoats as a kid, you know, I mean, like, I, I, I don't think that there's anything that's, like, not memorable about the way I grew up. I mean, I put a saddle on my little mule and jump creeks and run across meadows and catch frogs, and, like, it was awesome. Like, no no complaints on that. It was, like, all of it was great. It was, I was like a little wild animal. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds like kind of your dad was your hunting mentor. And I mean, did he instill conservation early in you? And what does conservation mean to you? Yeah, you know, my parents were RMEF members um, from the time like I was a little kid. Like I remember my mom and dad, like they didn't go out and like do things with like friends. They always worked. But when they did go do stuff, it usually was conservation centered. Like they would go to a local chapter banquet or they would go once in a while to RMEF like national conventions. And so I kind of grew up hearing about RMEF and conservation and didn't really know how hunting was conservation, but I, you know, later discovered that um, hunters truly are the greatest conservationists in the world and, you know, not only in the funding capacity, but in the care and concern of wildlife and wild places. And we're really taking an active step towards ensuring that everybody has uh better places to recreate, more opportunity for access to public land and accessing places with with beautiful spaces that are conserved, not necessarily preserved, which is a big difference, uh, for us and the next generation. So uh, just, just seeing that from the time I was a little kid and then being involved with RMEF and SDI, I mean, I was an SDI chapter president in my early 20s. I was one of the youngest ones. I went to Washington, D.C., lobbied with with SCI and done a lot of work with them. And boy, I think if you're a hunter, you're naturally a conservationist, but I don't know very many hunters that don't also double down and, and kind of contribute back to a lot of these conservation organizations, which speaks a lot. 
Yeah, you talked about conservation and preservation. So get into that a little bit, the differences, because I think people kind of tend to lump those together like they're the same thing. Well, preservation is kind of a scary word. Preservation means you leave something alone and you don't touch it. And that can be, you know, uh, in perpetuity or it could be preserved for a time period. Um, It just depends on how long this word preserve is used for, which makes it scary. That means you can't do absolutely anything with that resource. So if you're talking about preserving a body of water or a parcel of land or anything, you know, timber tracks, you know, consider wildernesses, um, like a preservation, uh, that means that the humans can't go in there and we can't do anything to enhance that ecosystem or help or make it more um, utilizing like its natural capacity and resources. So it's preserved, it's untouched. Conservation on the other hand, um, takes a different approach is we want to make this parcel land, body of water, whatever better. We want to conserve it. We want to enhance it, but it also goes hand in hand with utilizing a resource. So you can conserve and enhance without um, preserving. So, you're actually able to go in and do things that would have resource stewardship and uh, benefit ecosystems with more of a first person instead of a passive non-touching approach. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I hear that a lot. People are like, well, we need to preserve this. It's like, well, what you're saying is we're not going to touch it to your point. Right. And it needs touch sometimes. And we're stewards of the land. We do need to be involved. We can't pretend like if we just leave it, the way it is, is just going to magically, you know, be the same regardless of, you know, what happens in nature. Like you look at a lot of places here in Wyoming where we have lots of beetle kill and a lot of that area doesn't get touched. You know, it's preserved, I guess you could say. And then it all burns up and it's, it's a disaster. And so it's like, well, we should actually be conserving and stewarding that land as opposed to preserving the land because people are a part of the landscape too. Yeah. And you, I mean, you see this a lot, especially like in Oregon with, uh, you know, our, our forests, our old growth forests. And, and we have these heavy timber blocks that are preserved as wilderness and they're not logs, they're not managed, they're not thin. And pretty soon what happens is these giant trees, you know, they, they consume every natural resource that's sunlight and rain and nothing on the forest floor grows. And so there's nothing for ungulates to eat. And so you end up with these massive tracts of timberland, which are, are huge fire hazards, but also they're void of wildlife uh, to the capacity that they could have because they don't host the habitat um, because you have these huge canopies that, that nothing can grow under. And so preservation is, is very scary and um it's a word that we should all really pay attention to when it's used in language, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, forest projects, legal documentation that, that different groups are putting out when it comes to balancing nature and wildlife and our ecosystems. And, and to your point, I mean, that's a reason that one of the show sponsors, Bow Spider, is partnered with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is, I mean, simply put, we sell a product for bow hunters. They need somewhere to go to utilize that product. And one of the best organizations at conserving ground and opening up more access and opportunity is Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Go look at their mission statement and go look at where they put their dollars. And that's, that's all you need to know about them. Yeah, they've done a really 
good job. A lot of people think Army of like buys land and they keep it and all of these like celebrities get to go hunting on it and it's like totally bogus. When I hosted their show for years, everybody's like, Oh, well you get this special privilege on RMEF ground and RMEF does not hold and own land. They may acquire land. Um, and they'll use uh, funds generated through banquets and nonprofits to acquire land, but they don't hold land. And what they'll do then is they'll turn over that acquired land to different, either it's National Forest or BLM or whatever agency, um, and allow them the stewardship of that land, put it in a conservancy trust. And a lot of times when they're doing that, they're doing it for the specific reason of access. And so they'll buy these land tracks, um, that allow public access to places that otherwise are landlocked. And so they're really, really good about opening up checkerboard properties. Um, in the John Day headwaters of Oregon, there was huge expanses of checkerboard properties, and RMEF went in and acquired some land, turned it back over. Um, I think it was to National Forest, but don't quote me on that. Um, and, but it opened up thousands and thousands of acres for the public to access, enjoy, and hunt, which otherwise would have been blocked. And so, you know, they've done a very, very good job of, of ensuring, you know, that hunters have access because access is the number one reason or lack of access is the number one reason that people either quit hunting or don't start hunting. And you're a hundred percent correct. You look at the model back East and it's, it's leased ground. You, you go to the farmer, you, you give him a check and you own the hunting rights for the year. And you know, it's gone are the days of driving around, knocking on a door, taking your, your little kid with you and saying, Hey, we want to go on our first turkey hunt. Cause everybody's going to go, sorry, the ground's leased. Sorry. The ground. I don't have the, I don't have the rights to give you permission out here in the West is a little different, but even that, you know, in Montana and here in Wyoming, it's changing. It's going away from, you get a tag drive out here, drive up a rancher's door and knock on the door and say, Hey, can I go hunt today with this kid? It's our model is changing. And so the public lands are, a resource that is beyond invaluable. I mean, it's, it's, that's where I focus all my hunting and all my passion and efforts is because then I don't have to ask for permission. We just know we can go there. We're seeing that in Wyoming right now with turkey season because a lot of the turkeys are on private land that has river bottom and, and trees and the turkeys aren't necessarily on public and you just can't get access to them um, and they won't grant access or they run through an outfitter. And so it's even an issue here in Wyoming. Um, you know, species specific, you know, right now my encounter to that would be, you know, predominantly turkeys, but um, even with whitetail, you know, whitetail in Wyoming, you know, the, the habitat that they flourish in, a lot of it is on private and landlocked and, and uh, difficult to acquire uh, a public space or find a public space that you can hunt that actually holds and carries whitetail. So it's interesting. Yeah. And it's certainly changed over my lifetime. I'm from Wyoming and I've watched it evolve over the years. Cause when I was, you know, 12 years old and old enough to hunt big game, it was a lot easier to get access to somewhere to, to hunt antelope and deer. And now, I mean, it's, it's a lot more difficult and I don't foresee that, you know, really improving in the future as far as, you know, it's, it's only going to get tighter. And, the, and maybe that's a question for you is, you know, maybe, is it more important now more than ever for people like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and groups like that to help with access? Because I, I foresee it kind of tightening up so much that maybe that is going to become more and more important as we go along. No, I think the biggest issue right now is these nonprofits don't have a legal team that's fighting and have um, an active lobbyist staff in Washington, D.C. like SCI does. 
SCI is one of the only organizations that have on-staff attorneys that have people in Washington, D.C. that are working daily with lawmakers and lobbyists trying to fight for hunting rights. And other nonprofits have to get a legal team. They have to get involved. They have to get in politics because our right to hunt and fish, own firearms, is lost in the courtroom. And right now, SCI and NRA are the only ones that are showing up on a consistent level in our courtroom. So it doesn't matter if we have access or not. We don't have the right to do it. It's a great point. And, uh, you know, you're a, a firearms instructor and obviously passionate about Second Amendment. What does all that mean to you? And, and how do you implement that in the future? What are you doing with that? Well, I moved to a state that is a Second Amendment sanctuary. Um, it is really hard. Again, we're losing all of this stuff in the courts. We're losing the court of public opinion. So how we present the use of firearms, how we talk about firearms, has to be, in my opinion, in a manner and a tone that always is a steward of safety, responsibility, heritage, legacy, and always putting out their safety, safety, safety. And um, I think if you own firearms and you put out poorly produced videos on the back 40 that are doing things with firearms that are reckless or unsafe, you're doing every gun owner a huge injustice. So um, I'm always on the forefront of firearm safety and promoting that so that the general public can also understand that gun owners, law-abiding citizens, are safe and responsible with that. And, and I try to be a good role model for that. The people that are committing crimes are criminals and we shouldn't be uh, penalized for those acts. Yeah, I was going to say, I took the NRA pistol certifications, I think it's been like three or four years ago now, and we talked a lot about that, that, you know, safety is the number one thing, right? And I don't think people understand, like, how seriously we all take gun safety, those of us who've gone through those kind of courses and whatnot, and it's a huge deal, and you see people being flippant about it, and it, it hurts everybody else. Same in the hunting world, fishing world, things get done and posted to social media or, or wherever, and it's like, oh man, you're you're killing us here because you're not being a good representation of what we are. Because when I went through all those certifications, it was pounded into me, positive control of your firearm safety, always knowing what's going on. And I don't know. I just think that that's kind of a, a lost thing on a lot of people that have grown up around firearms. They need to remember that. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, speaking in tone and in our, in our own, you know, we all have our own platform. I mean, everybody has friends on Facebook and Instagram for the most part anymore. And if you do own firearms that you represent that well and, and you educate people to the best of your ability of, you know, an armed citizenry is a safe citizenry. Um, and, you know, just really individually become an advocate for the second amendment. But I mean, personally, I moved to a state that protects my rights to own a firearm constitutionally, protects my right to carry and be my first, own first responder constitutionally. That's enshrined in the Wyoming state constitution. So, you know, it, that's part of it too, is that, you know, if you want to own firearms, if you're living in a state that doesn't allow them because of the voting population, again, this goes back to what happens in the courts. We see our rights on Second Amendment opportunities slipping in, you know, tremendously in New York. California, Oregon, Washington, our rights are diminishing in those states because of what's happening in our court system, which is why it's really important that we all, you know, kind of collect and, and join groups that, um, that protect and defend the Second Amendment, protect and defend our right to hunt and fish. And, and it, 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 we lose it in the courtroom in the, you know, uh, district court. 
court's judge decision um, in the blink of an eye. I mean, Washington or Wyoming and Idaho last month were on the docket to lose um, baited bear hunts in a ninth, ninth Circuit Court, I believe, or the Tenth Circuit Court court case out of California. I think it was the Tenth Circuit. Um, and they, the, the anti that, that put this, you know, proposed litigation forward, you know, trying to stop baiting bears said, well, if people are baiting these bears, you know, they, they're likely to accidentally kill a grizzly bear. And FBI was in the courtroom for that and helped get that bill, you know, defeated to where we can still currently bait bears in Idaho and Wyoming, talking about how, you know, baiting is a better opportunity to visually inspect an animal for species, you know, for sex, for age, the, whether they have young or not present. And so FBI really helped win that fight in the courtroom. Um, it can be appealed. But you guys, this is stuff like the courts are our scariest place right now in our country, whether it's for hunting, for Second Amendment, for whatever. Um, and we need to really band together and, and help, you know, combat these cases. Because they're coming out of states that we may not even be living in. For, for this example, it's a great, great example of that. Well, our neighbors to the north, you know, with in Canada with, with their prime minister, 10 years ago, he said, well, you need to register your guns, but we're not going to take them. Here, here it was last year. They took all the pistols. It's no longer legal to buy, sell, or transfer a pistol. Now they're putting legislation out that basically any rifle is now a, it's no longer a firearm, it's a weapon, and they're going to take all the long guns, right? And it's, thankfully, we do have the Second Amendment here, but it's still, it's scary what's going on for sure. Well, registration leads to confiscation, period. Yes. And there's no free society in the history of our world that a registration has not led ultimately to compensation. And there's some really interesting data in Alaska, and don't quote the exact year, but I think it was 84 or 85 that they went from a constitutional carry state to a concealed carry state. Crime rates skyrocketed. Why? Because all the law-abiding citizens couldn't carry a gun, and all the criminals knew that. Guess what the legislator did the next year? 86 or 87, they abolished it, went back to constitutional carry. And you can see the data. 84, crime rates low. 85, crime rates through the roof. 86, crime rates real low again. It's pretty blatantly obvious. And this this isn't a privilege we're talking about. This is a right. So what's the best thing, in your opinion, for those of us who hunt, um, you know, if we truly care about it, what are some things that the general you know, public can do? Well, we can be good ambassadors to hunting, be good ambassadors to the Second Amendment, represent it well, teach how hunting is conservation, uh, teach how an armed society is a safe society. We can do that in our own homes. We can do that in our own communities. We can do that with what we do on social media, getting involved in advocacy, so joining a nonprofit contributing funds, donating, supporting organizations like SBI. And I mean, as, as heated as NRA's reputation is, um, they are our strongest Second Amendment advocate, you know, join and support. And hopefully whatever waters are muddied there are getting cleaned up and because we need them. So you have a voice in the outdoor industry and you develop that over time. Kind of tell us the story of how that started um, for you and how that's kind of evolved over, you know, the last 10 years or so, or even longer. <laughs> oh boy. It started with conservation. So I started working um, originally with SBI as a volunteer and it was a chapter president, went to DC um, and I got invited on a, a to, to, as a guest on um, Mike Rogers from SCI's TV show, did a hunt with them, and 
I got actually into into clothing, um, which is kind of a roundabout way because I had been up north in Canada doing some stuff with with Cody Robbins, helping him start Live to Hunt. And um, Jim Shockey's cousin called me and was like, hey, you know, She Safari is expanding their pro staff and you should reach out to them. Well, because of what I had done with SBI, I had this random guy's phone number, turned out to be the CEO of the company. And so I helped um, She Safari do a whole corporate rebrand. And I took that company from She Safari and actually designed their current logo, um, She Outdoor Apparel, their current logo with the S. Um, and I kind of mirrored that off of what SBI did with Safari Club International with the Lion and Shield logo and how they moved into SBI First for Hunters. And so I kind of copied that marketing strategy off of a little bit of what SBI had done as a facelifter rebrand to appeal to more everyday people. So I helped she go through that, and then I helped Under Armour launch their women's hunt division. And in doing so, I made all these relationships, and uh, I was, I'm a huge RMEF fan and have been for years, and I was bugging RMEF about needing uh, a female presence on their television show. And... Um, so they brought me in to kind of co-host that show with Brandon Bates, and I did that for five seasons, and I, you know, mentored kids and kind of helped women and became a firearms instructor, and one thing led to another, and I ended up with my own show uh, when when RMEF went off of network and onto digital. I started my own digital series, so that's how that all, that's a long, short story. <laughs> what is the show called? My show is called Pursue the Wild, and this year we'll be airing on Pursuit. This is my first time airing on Pursuit, but I'm filming season seven right now, so there's six seasons currently, and those are airing on Carbon TV, um, Facebook, and YouTube, um, and then soon on Pursuit. And then um, I have a new reality series, which is just like a self-filmed cell phone lifestyle series called Our Wild Life, which is on Carbon TV and YouTube and Facebook. And then I have a podcast called uh, the Wildland Cut Podcast, and that airs on Carbon everywhere you can download podcasts. You can watch it on YouTube and Facebook. So I'm pretty busy. So do you prefer to rifle hunt or archery hunt? Um, I don't know. It just I love shooting guns. Like I get a huge like adrenaline dump when I shoot guns. Like really fun shooting guns, like especially competitively. Uh, but I don't think there's anything better than bow hunting elk. Uh, so I love both. My husband and I shoot our bows in the summer and like warmer times of the year every night. Um, I don't shoot guns every day, but I shoot guns three or four days a week. But I shoot my bow almost every day when the weather's good. And it's just kind of our kickback, relax time. And and so I don't know. I, I don't, I like them both. Not discriminating. All right. I like that answer. As far as adrenaline goes, what's your favorite gun to shoot? Like what 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 is the one that really gets you amped? firearms is they make firearms for like pretty much every application so if I'm competing in a rifle match like long range so I'm gearing up to shoot a extreme long range match in Casper Wyoming in two weeks or three weeks and I'll shoot the Ruger precision rifle that one's chambered in 300 PRC that was really fun that's more of a belly match uh, more of a pro match but it's really fun because the distances are far so that's super fun but the NRL Hunter series is really fun. Um, that's one of my favorite matches to shoot. Again, I'm shooting a Ruger Precision Rifle. That one I shoot in a 6.5 Creedmoor because of the minimum power factor for that series. Um, and that is a really fun series, which I think a lot of hunters should 
take notice of because when you walk up to a stage, you have a four-minute time limit. They give you a left and right lateral limit. You have to find your targets, range estimate them, get your data, get your wind hold, build your shooting position, and engage those 10 targets, or no, 10 rounds, depending on how many targets, but it's 10 round counts typically um, within a four-minute time frame. And you don't get to watch anybody else do it, so you go into it totally blind. So it mocks hunting, in my opinion. Like, it kind of really sets you up for realistic situations. Um, and and so I really love doing that. But then, obviously, I love my bolt-action rifles for hunting and like shooting pistols, like the Ruger 5.7 pistol, super fun. Uh, 5.7 Ruger is really fun to shoot. Um, it's like no recoil. <laughs> Um, or like I just got back from gunsight and we were shooting the Ruger Max 9 and we were doing some concealed carry kind of practical training with Illinois New and Girls with Guns. Um, so I don't know, man, like I want to shoot all the guns. It's fun. <laughs> as far as women go, uh, what in the Ruger line would you recommend for concealed carry for women especially? I don't think that there's a one size that it's all answer for women in firearms. Um, and I think that's a really big mistake that a lot of people make is they think they can buy one gun and it's great for everything. Um, my answer to that would be it depends. So like if I'm jogging, I'll carry like a Ruger LCP2 and that's chambered in 380. I like that because it's a very micro compact pistol, super lightweight, I can jog with it. And then I can also um, train with that the LCP2 also comes chambered in a 22 long rifle, so I can train and practice with that very economically. Um, if I want something that has higher round capacity, the Ruger Max 9 is a great 9mm frame, really concealable, especially if you couple it with like a sticky holster. I can wear my Max 9 in a sticky holster in my leggings, and it stays in place, so I can do my appendix carry really easily. Um, some people prefer a revolver, so if you're going to carry in a purse and potentially get in a situation where you have to defend your life and shoot through a purse, a revolver is a little less likely to malfunction versus like a semi-automatic that might have a movable slide um, when you're clinging or you know catching fabric. Um, so I I always say you know with what you're carrying it depends. Um, I've got an LCR right now that I've got birdshot in for rattlesnakes. <laughs> so I'm carrying that as a revolver. <laughs> so uh, there's really like, it depends on what you want. How are you carrying? What are you wearing? How, what's the function? You know, how big is your body? You can carry a lot larger frame pistol if you're a bigger person versus a smaller person. Um, man, if I'm wearing a summer dress and I want a flashbang holster, I got my little LCP2 380 hooked to my bra. <laughs> you know what I mean? So no, I like that answer because it, it's all about fit and application, right? So does the gun actually fit that person and what are they using it for? So no, I like that answer. And you gave a good wide range. So thank you. <laughs> well, we first met in uh, Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls booth. We got to chat with Rocky Jacobson. So give me some backstory because I've followed their, their stuff since I was a little kid. So I met Rocky Jacobson in my early 20s. And I was obsessed with hunting and calling elk. And, like, I was just a young 20-year-old girl. I had no career, no industry experience, no TV show, no social media. Like, 
I wanted to date myself, but this was 20 years ago. <laughs> um, it was a long time ago. And I was listening to DVDs and CDs and like practicing out calling because I just totally ate up with it. And I went clear from Central Oregon to Eugene, Oregon. And I went to an elk calling contest over there. Um, not contest. I went to an elk calling seminar over there. And Rocky was teaching it with Jim Horn. And I listened to his seminar. And I walked up to him afterwards. And I was like, I don't know who makes these calls. But these are my favorite. And da-da-da. And I was just just totally fangirling on them. I was totally enamored with what they could do with elk sounds and um and Rocky has said, well, those are my calls. And next thing you know, I was on their pro staff. But he gave me a very stern warning and was like, look, you're a young girl, but you have to carry your weight. And you have to be able to call and you have to be able to do this. Otherwise, I'm going to fire you off our pro staff, which I wasn't paid. <laughs> it was just like, no, we're going to, you know, disassociate. But, uh, you know, I'm still with Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. Rocky's still a great friend. And I love bow hunting with him. And yeah, no, when I first got into it there in Corvallis, Albany, Oregon, there was, we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have, you know, all this information. There was a couple books out there, and there was his DVDs and CDs, and that's all there was. Yeah, there were CDs and DVDs, and yeah, that was it. VHS, still a little bit. Yeah, yep. Um, but, yeah, no, and I, you know, I feel very fortunate to have learned to call from them and with them and so many tips from them and um, from some of the best elk hunters and callers in, in the world and you know people that have really been important to me in my life and very thankful for that getting into the hunting and david already warned you we we ask a lot of our guests this like what is your favorite big game species to hunt and then also what's your favorite one to eat and how do you prepare it well i should prepare archery and Fred Bear is one of the most iconic bow hunters in the world. And, you know, he talks about in everything he speaks, the challenge that comes with bow hunting, but also the intimacy of being a bow hunter. Um, and there is something that is so captivating about bow hunting elk because you get to be so close to that. Just when they say they're a magnificent or magical or mag uh, majestic species, like all of these words are perfect for running elk. Um, and I don't think there's anything better in the world than bow hunting elk because you get to literally speak to them. Um, you get to interact with them. You, you try to think how they're thinking. And the sounds that you're making, you're trying to tell them a story that they ultimately understand. And it's just a really powerful experience. And I don't think... I don't think that there's anything more captivating than that. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you cook it once you get it? Yeah, so... To be very honest with you, I grind almost all of my meat because my husband and I eat meat patties almost every night, like ground meat patties. And I've always loved, like, the idea of making elk steaks, but they're very difficult to prepare properly and perfectly. Like, in steak form, it's really easy to overcook game meat. So I make a lot of ground, and I eat that almost, almost every day. Um, but my new thing that I've discovered is the air fryer. The air fryer does a heck of a job on cooking like backstraps and tenderloins, um, or I'll use the 500 degree method, um, like you would for a uh, 
traditional roast, and I will wrap my tenderloins or backstraps in bacon, season them, put them in the oven at 500 degrees, and you do five minutes per pound, and then at 500 degrees, and then you turn off the oven and let the, let the meat rest in that oven for an hour, but you don't open the oven. And that is amazing, and I love topping that with, like, a chimichurri sauce. Um, but the air fryer is easy. Like, you just chop it up in little cube pieces. You put it in the air fryer at 390 for, like, 10 minutes, and it's amazing. Sounds really good. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> You're going to have to bust out the elk so we can eat. <laughs> we, we, we have the air fryer. I've never tried that one. I always put it on the smoker, the Traeger. But I'll, I will, uh, I'll, I'll get the wife to try sticking some of that in the air fryer. Yeah, we chop it, just cube it up into, like, bite-sized nuggets and just throw it in the air fryer, but don't overcook it. You have to, like last night I overcooked mine a little bit. It wasn't, so just like 10 minutes, you know, um, or just pull it out and check it, but it puts a nice texture on the outside and the mess is, there's no mess and easy. So what is one piece of gear, if you're leaving to go on any hunt anywhere in the world that you make sure you have that's pretty vital to success? If I'm rifle hunting, it's my data card. Like my arm board, I... I kind of get teased a little bit online because I'm really into precision shooting. So, you know, if I have a deer at 350 or anything at 350, I want to dial point of aim, point of impact accuracy because I shoot for night force and our scopes are designed to give you perfection. And so, like, I would melt down without data. I don't know how I would handle, like, mentally not having data. Like, I wear it on my arm. It looks like a football playbook on my arm. And it's everywhere with me and I love that it's like it's changed my life and my confidence having that point of aim point of impact accuracy like a lot of people want to throw money at success and buying a really expensive firearm um but I think your best investment is number one I, Ruger makes affordable firearms that have better accuracy extreme accuracy that is better than I can shoot my ammo, I shoot Hornady and the exacting standards that they manufacture, their match ammo, their hunting ammo. My data is so consistent coming out of that, those two components. And when I put a good optic on it, like a night force, man, I, I mean, within reason, you know, if I feel comfortable taking a shot with a rifle, you know, I, I don't have a lot of doubt in my mind that I'm going to make it happen. You know what I mean? Because my equipment is so good. If I feel like the wind conditions are right and my rest is right, you know, the, the things could, you know, if, if I don't feel like it's right it's outside of my limitations for whatever reason, I won't take the shot. But, man, I like that confidence that having a good gun, good ammo, good optics, and good data give you when you press that trigger and you know your bullet's going to go where you're aiming. Oh, that's great advice. This this is a question we like to ask people that are very involved in the hunting and fishing industry because we cover a lot of hunting and fishing related topics. But as far as mentorship and bringing along people you know, that are new into the sport. What is, you know, maybe your top one or two suggestions to those who are out there mentoring and working with somebody new? What are some things that they should do and maybe something they shouldn't do? First of all, become a hunter education instructor. Um, my husband and I just got certified to teach hunter ed and I've helped teach a couple classes in Wyoming. We do not have enough hunter ed instructors out there. Like our country, like our kids can't go hunting because there's not enough classes to certify them to go hunting right now. Um, there are some classes online that are free that you can loophole, like Oregon has a, um, a hunter ed course that your kids can 
take online that is similar to like a driver's license, so it's reciprocity. So look for some of those if you can't get your kids into a hundred class. But I encourage everybody, if you can become a hundred instructor, absolutely do. We need those instructors out there that are teaching safety, they're teaching responsibility, they're teaching ethics, they're teaching conservation, how hunting is conservation. So that is really, really important. I guess something not to do would, would be to to not embody those those things with everything that you do on social media and throughout your life. You know, be a good example. Follow the rules, follow the law. I I was turkey hunting last week, for example, and I missed a turkey, which with a shotgun I didn't know was possible with a full choke at close range. Is let me tell you, very possible. And the landowner's son had really wanted to hunt with me. He was a younger guy, and he said, "Well." you know, this turkey's gobbling back here, let's go. And and the sun had legally just set. Now turkeys, you have to stop hunting at sunset. You don't get that grace period. And I was like, you know, they have, you know, rules for a reason. And, you know, fair chase, the turkeys are going to their roost. And, you know, we, we need to call it a day. And somebody else gets to hunt this turkey now, you know. Sometimes I think people have a hard time drawing that line of, Okay, I could have done that. I could have seen. I could have probably made the shot. But it's not ethical. It's not legal. And and living up to that and having your kids or other people see that example you set in your community and in everything you do is number one. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Are there still some stigmas out there for women in the hunting industry? Have you run across them and how do we overcome them? I don't think so anymore. Like, I don't know. Whatever. Like, when I started hunting, I wore GI surplus, like, camo. Like, my dad and I went down and bought GI surplus camo at the used surplus stores. Like, they didn't have clothes for girls. Firearms manufacturers didn't really take heed into having adjustable features, like, just rolling the pole. And so, the industry's transformed. I mean, we have women's clothing, hunting clothing that's available right now. Like, Cryptech does a really great job with Sisterhood of the Outdoors and providing that. Ruger makes firearms for everybody, and I love that they're not condescending and saying this is a girl gun, this is our ladies' firearm. Because there's also small men out there. Um, so I love that these manufacturers have said, okay, we need to make products in gear for people that are smaller and people that are bigger, people younger that are older, um, have features in them for aging eyes, or, you know, we have verifiers for bows. We have, um, you know, different, you know, our optics have adjustable diopters so that we can adjust the, the vision, diminishing vision that we might have. And so I, I don't think that there's anything holding women back anymore except women, right? Like we can do anything we want to do. We just have to go do it. Good deal. And, I, and I feel like the industry is welcome to it. Like we have so many professional like hunting guys and outfitters that are ladies that are like truly awesome, incredible, capable women that are as tough or tougher than men. And I, I don't want to pin a woman against a man ever on the mountain, but we're pretty darn equal. No, I think that's great. And we have a lot of women that listen to this show and we try to bring on a lot of female guests because I mean, I think it really is equalizing and it's taken quite a while, but it's finally doing it. I do have to ask you this question because David's much more on the hunting side. I hunt too, but my passion is fishing and I hear you like to fish. So what do you like to fish for? And uh, what are the ones that you like to eat as well? I'm not a fisherman. You don't like to fish? I love fishing. 
But if like <laughs> if you were to take me fishing and I were to sit on the riverbank, I would not know what to throw for bait, what the technique would be, like no clue. I have to be completely guided for fishing. Like my level of fishing expertise is zero. So like I love fishing. We just went red fishing um, at Bray's Island in South Carolina and it was beautiful. I knew nothing about red fishing, right? Like, knew nothing. But by the end of the day, man, I was catching redfish. It was awesome. But my captain had to teach me, right? So I am still very much a student in angling, and I'm okay with that. I go and I learn and I have a great time. But um, one of my favorite fishing trips is probably my cousin Bryce takes me on the Clearwater River in Idaho, and we fish for B-Run um, steelhead. And they're a fun fighting fish. And if they're not too far gone on that run, um, they make an incredible smoking fish. So one of my favorite recipes I do at Christmas is I smoke my B-Run steelhead, and we make like a spicy smoked salmon dip. And it's amazing, and I love those B-Run fish. And fish tacos. Oh, yeah. Fish tacos, smoked fish dip, you've got me there. Those are two of my favorite things in the whole world. When we were red fishing, we... We took all our redfish back, and we took it to a restaurant, and we prepared our redfish for us. And it was incredible. And it's, like, the perfect fish taco food. Like, anything fish, for me, is great in a taco form. Oh, yeah. I had never met a fish taco I didn't like. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. I love fish tacos. Yeah. Again, it's been really cool getting to know you and having you on the podcast. And so... For those who want to follow you, check out all the stuff that you're doing. How do they do that, and where do they find you? Well, the easiest way to like watch all of my shows and and listen to my podcast would be go to my website, which is pursuethewild.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram under my name, which is Christy Titus uh, with a K. Uh, go to Carbon TV. Please go to Carbon TV. One thing I love about Carbon TV, uncensored. And they, they support hunting, they support shooting, they support um, our community, our angling community as well. Facebook and YouTube and Instagram, the censorship shadow banning is so high. So I really invite everybody, you know, go to Carbon TV, go to a platform that supports our way of life and what we're doing. And follow my my uh, two shows there and my podcast there as well. So um, it's all under Pursue the Wild, Wild and Uncut, Our Wildlife, and Christy Titus. So. Well, again, thanks for coming on. I know we uh, we had to work to get it all together, but it's been a pleasure. And I mean, I look forward to seeing what you're doing in the future for sure. What is one big thing well, that you're looking forward to doing? What's what's on the bucket list? What's coming up? I get to hunt Wyoming as a resident this year. Like number <laughs> one, super awesome. So my dad and husband and I have most of September and October slated just for DIY hunts. I've got two beautiful little baby mules that I'm training uh, that are going to be my future little pack mules and riding saddle mules. And I'm just really excited to get my family out and on the mountains here in Wyoming and enjoy our beautiful public lands um, with the things and people that matter the most to me. That sounds like good goals to me. Well, again, Christy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 
We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors. Thank you.